Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mike, check. Mike, check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Word up. That. Biblical, biblical, theology, theology, study, the person of God, attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics, and Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet, so please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology, that phrase alone that gives some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough, uh-huh. just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a different... All right, folks. Welcome to another edition of... Theology Matters with the Paloos. I'm your host, Devin Palou. Hope you guys are doing good out there. We have a a very good show for you guys lined up today. We are going to have my good friend, John Ferrer, uh, who is a philosopher and uh, just all-around great guy on the show, and going to talk to us a little bit about his debate that he recently had at the Bible Beer uh, in Consortium with the atheist uh, Matt Dillahunty. And many of you guys know Matt Dillahunty from the Atheist Experience. And uh, we've actually had Mr. Mr. Dillahunty on the show twice. Uh, Once he actually had a uh, debate with John on the existence of God, and they actually got into the topic of morality there quite a bit. About a two-hour discussion we hosted on the show is very good. Uh, those guys seem seem to get along very well, and uh, one of those debates that create more light than heat, which is rare, so we're thankful for that. And uh, we've also had Bill Honey on the show uh, debating our friend Clinton Wilcox on the issue of abortion. So uh, I, you know, as far as atheists goes, I appreciate Mr. Dillahoney, I think he's a pretty, pretty thoughtful guy, and uh, we just want to take a look back at that discussion and just have John flesh some of that out for us. So he's going to be on with us in about 30 minutes, so stay with us. Um, if you have not liked our Facebook page, you can go to Theology Matters with the Paloos, like us there. This is a show where we really try and do a lot of topics mainly centering on issues of theology and apologetics. We say theology matters because uh, ideas have consequences. And a wrong view of God, a wrong view of reality, a wrong view of nature, etc., can be very costly. And so we promote a uh, Christian worldview. We don't make any bones about that. We are Christians. I believe that the Bible is the Word of God. And I believe that it's reasonable and rational, and uh, that's why we do the show. We we really believe these things matter, and it matters for eternity. So go to our Facebook page. Uh, you can find several debates we've done, as I already mentioned, a couple with Dillahunty. Uh, we also deal with cults and other world religions. So 
So there you'll find shows on Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism. Uh, we do our, our annual show uh, on the Protestant Reformation. Every year we dedicate the month of October to that, and we've done several debates with uh, our Roman Catholic friends, and uh, those have always been very um, amicable, would be the term. Uh, I think that's the one thing that I, I think that we... One of the things, not not hopefully not the only thing, but one of the things that I think that we do very well on this show uh, is it's it's we don't want to have a Jerry Springer kind of atmosphere. Uh, we want it to be a thoughtful place where uh, people of all different beliefs can come and we can reason about these things. And so, uh, glad you guys can join us. So again, you can go to to our Facebook page and get our. Um, Podcast, sign up on iTunes uh, or Android. You can you can get one like the the Pod Kicker apps, etc. So, uh, and the the station we are with is True Radio. So be sure to look for that. And my wife does a show uh, every once in a while on Fridays called uh, Pro Life Radio, uh, and they will look at the issues dealing with abortion. Some of the things that are in the in the news, as far as particular laws, uh, as well as how to defend the pro-life position. So be sure to look up our network on there as well. So this past um, weekend, I should say, uh, the York Baptist Association, along with Ratio Christie, uh, and uh, let's see, Fort Mill First Baptist Church, we sponsored an apologetics conference. Now, this is one of the first, I believe it, it, it's the only conference uh, out here in the York Baptist Association in this in this area that, that uh, I think it's the first time that, that we've actually done an apologetics conference. And I'm telling you folks, it was exciting. We had a, a very good turnout uh, considering... Um, you know, how it was promoted. We didn't have big mass media, or, you know, promoting it on TV, etc. Uh, it was just kind of word of mouth. And kind of the, the goal was to get apologetics into the local churches. Uh, let the let the pastors um, kind of sink their teeth a bit more into apologetics. You know, folks, pastors have so many things on their on their table. They have sermons that they're preparing for, they're dealing with counseling sessions constantly, they're uh, a lot of times, depending on the church, uh, having to deal with funerals, and, uh, you know, they're getting pulled in a million directions, and, uh, you know, a lot of of them uh, have just not really been able to be trained in Christian apologetics, and the, the idea of this conference was really to... To, to help train and equip some pastors uh, in this area of apologetics because we just see this uh, all the time with, uh, like I say, I'm, I'm a chapter director with Ratio Christi, which uh, is a college ministry for um, young adults who uh, were basically our primary purpose is to teach apologetics, uh, show them how to defend the faith. We meet uh, every Tuesday night, and we go through a different curriculum. This last semester, we've been going through Stephen Meyer's uh, True You series on Is the Bible Reliable? We went through a lot of the historical events in the Old Testament, 
and some of the things in the New Testament. Uh, but the goal is to show these kids uh, why we need apologetics, why this is so important. And they pretty much know it by the time they're on the college campus. Um, they realize that a lot of the things they have been taught is not really believed necessarily by the secular world. And so I wrote a blog a while back for my church, and I attend uh, Park Baptist Church in Rock Hill, great church, uh, good Southern Baptist church, a lot of good preaching, teaching, emphasis on the Bible and theology. And I wrote this blog for uh, for my pastor. He'd asked me to write this, um, kind of explaining why do we need apologetics. And so I, I wrote this. I'm going to just kind of briefly read this, and then we'll talk how this kind of fits in the conference. So we'll go ahead and start. Susie was brought up in a Christian home. Her father was a pastor and instilled in her the need to read the Bible and memorize Scripture. As a child, Susie excelled in her Sunday school class and won many awards. As Susie got older, she began learning things in her high school science classes that caused her great distress. If the Bible is the Word of God, where does science fit in? Was she being, she was being taught that the universe came into existence through natural processes alone and that the origin of life was really just a freak accident. What about cavemen? and the transitional forms in the fossil record? Are we really just a product of chance and natural processes? These issues weighed heavily on Susie, yet she did not want to tell her dad that she was having some serious doubts, as science seemed incompatible with what she had been taught in her Sunday school classes growing up. Things got worse for Susie when she entered her first semester of college. Her second class of the week was an intro to philosophy class. She was shaken to the core when the professor had proclaimed boldly that God was dead. Throughout the semester, the professor not only attacked the existence of God, but also taught that the Bible could not be the word of God because it was filled with contradictions. Susie, shaken to her core, came home at Christian break and told her parents that she had abandoned her faith because science and philosophy had demonstrated that God did not exist and the Bible was not his word. Her dad was heartbroken, but was not able to counter the arguments Susie had learned in school. He thought to himself, where did I, grow, where did I go wrong? Susie was brought up in a church, memorized scripture, went to BBS every year. How could this happen? Sadly, this scenario plays out in many homes every year. It is estimated that three out of four teens who grew up in a Christian home walk away from the faith they were brought up in. So how do we respond? Sadly, many churches did not know how to stop the bleeding. Throughout the history of the church, there has always been vicious attacks on the existence of God in the Bible. Scripture commands believers to give it offense for these attacks. 1 Peter 3.15 reads, but... Uh, in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, always being prepared to make an offense to anyone who asks you for a reason of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, 
Greek word for defense in this verse is apologia, which is where we get the term apologetics. Apologetics is the branch of Christian theology that provided a defense for the faith drawn from philosophy, logic, science, and history. Many today in the church believe that faith and reason are opposed and incompatible. Many have never heard of thinkers like Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, Anselm, and others who dedicated their lives to answering the attacks on the Christian faith. So then why apologetics? Well, Christians need to learn apologetics, and I limited it to just three reasons for space uh, and time. For a fuller treatment on this, folks, you can go to Norman Geisler's website and look at an apologetic for apologetics. Uh, there's also several good books on this topic. Um, I, of course, I am a classical apologist, and you can get um, Grotice, Doug Grotice's book, Christian Apologetics. He's got several chapters on this. Uh, R.C. Sproul and John Gerstner's book, Classical Apologetics, is good, as well as uh, Geisler's Christian Apologetics. But for now, we'll just limit it to these three. Firstly, we are commanded by God to give a reason for the hope that's within us. Again, 1 Peter 3.15. Now, not every Christian is called to go to seminary. and Not every Christian is called to dedicate their lives to defending the faith. However, all Christians need to know what they believe and why they believe it. Throughout church history, there have been many who have tried to infiltrate the church in order to lead others astray through false teaching. Paul addressed this in his admonition to the Ephesian elders. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 31, it says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. In order to identify and discern a false view of God or a corrupt gospel, we must first know what the correct teaching is. This comes through reading the Bible, prayer, and studying theology and philosophy. Everyone is a theologian on some level question is whether we will be good ones or bad ones. And I might add, philosopher as well. You can't get out of doing philosophy, whether it's metaphysics, epistemology. Uh, we all do these things. Now, not everyone obviously does them professionally, uh, but we have to have some type of familiarity with it. Scripture tells us in 2 Timothy 2.15 to study our, uh, to show ourselves approved unto God be able to give an answer for the faith that uh, we have in us. Learning apologetics for the Christian is a command, not an option. I want to make a quick distinction here, too. So there's a, there's a guy, I can't remember his, his name. Um, he's an Anglican bishop and recently uh, was in a discussion with William Lane Craig on a particular podcast. Um, 
from Moody Radio podcast is called um, Up for Debate, uh, hosted by Julie Royce. Excellent show. They always they always have um, good discussions. This particular discussion was William Lane Craig and this particular Anglican bishop. I believe the name of the of the Anglican's book was uh, basically like Why Apologetics is Dead or or something to that effect. Why Apologetics is Failing. And in this book, he really argues that Christians should not engage in apologetics, that it's a waste of time. Uh, and he kept making this this um, this claim, and I see this with, uh, I've heard this a lot from other believers, that you, know, you don't have to give an argument to know God exists. And there's a distinction, I think, that needs to be made between knowing something is true versus showing something is true. So Dr. Wilhelm Craig, for example, will say often in his debates, uh, this inner, inner witness or inner testimony of the Holy Spirit is enough to let him know God exists and that he is a believer, that he is a Christian. And he, he, he says very carefully, look, I don't use this uh, as an argument for others to believe. So, you know, there are people that have had these experiences with God. Um, you know, just, you know, they, it, it could be something such as you're sitting down, you're reading the Bible, you're overwhelmed by a sense of God's holiness, etc. I'm not going to doubt that, okay? I'm not going to say, oh, you're, you know, you're a kook, whatever. Uh, but there, there is a difference between knowing that happened, okay, and it's this, it's this experience, uh, but obviously that is not an apologetic for others to believe, right? So there's a difference between knowing Christianity is true through personal experience, uh, inner witness of, it, of the Holy Spirit, etc., and showing Christianity is true. And apologetics does the latter. Apologetics defends the faith. So um, the person can know that God the Holy Spirit uh, is real because he's had this, you know, um, experience. Or I, I even think of the Muslim, for example. I'll be honest. I don't. I don't particularly put a lot of stock in the claims of visions, dreams, etc. Here in America, um, I think you know the Bible is sufficient. But you have areas where maybe they don't have Bibles, or maybe it's outlawed or something. And so you hear about Muslims, for example, that have dreams and they're converted to Christianity. Well, I'm not going to doubt that. You know, I'm not going to doubt their claim. I'm not going to doubt their experience because experiences are not really true or false. They just, they just are. It, it's an experience. We test experiences, of course, in light of Scripture. Um, but I guess what I'm saying is I'm not going to use that experience to argue for the existence of God. It might confirm it to me, but to, to show my Muslim friends why I'm now a Christian, I need to give arguments. I need to show that the Bible is true. I need to show through good argumentation that Jesus rose from the dead. So there's this distinction between knowing and, and showing. Second reason, we are commanded to evangelize. Matthew 28:19 says, you know, uh, go forth, make disciples, etc. We live in a culture that is increasingly skeptical. Forty years ago, there was a tremendous degree of respect for the Bible in our country. However, we now live in a country where the Bible uh, is mocked, and it's not only 
acceptable to mock it, but it's encouraged. The rise of scientism, this idea that the only way we can know things is through science. Um, so, of course, that would make claims of things like the existence of God and other immaterial realities uh, false. When engaging in evangelism, Christians are challenged to give reasons why one should believe that God exists and that the Bible is an authoritative book. Uh, up until the 1800s, Christians have been uh, very well versed in philosophical and historical arguments for the existence of God. The resurrection of Christ and the authority of the Bible. Uh, however, today most believers and many Christians have never heard the existence of God, about the heard arguments for the existence of God, and heard of arguments for the reliability of the Bible. Well, it's it's impossible to do these these kind of you know evangelism. Of course, you know God can do it. I'm not saying you know it's impossible for God to save someone apart from this. But God generally uses means uh, in order to accomplish his ends. And so if we live in a culture that basically has science as the dominant view of all knowledge and the test of all things, um, we have to engage in that worldview. We have to show where it's self-refuting. We have to show uh, also where times um, it's the materialist is using bad science. Um, also, sometimes we're going to have to show that what they think seems to be a contradiction really isn't. So, you know, I talk to a lot of skeptics who will reject the existence of God because of the Big Bang. Um, I remember I was uh, I was at um, a, we'll just say a um, liberal ministry had invited Horatio Christie to come partake in dinner with them in a panel discussion with the students. And one of the one of the people there, one of the leaders, um, was saying how the Big Bang uh, shouldn't be something Christians reject, and, and she just had assumed, I guess, all Christians were, uh, rejected the Big Bang. And the fact is, majority of Christian apologists will use the Big Bang uh, because it's not dealing with, um, you know, the, the efficient cause of the universe, but it's dealing with uh, maybe the mechanism, I guess you could say, as to what God used to create the universe. So there's there's things like that where we need to step in and engage the culture uh, and show that there's um, there's a misunderstanding between uh, what they think is a contradiction between faith and science. And so that's another reason, because um, we need to, to evangelize. Third, we need to do apologetics because the future of Christianity in America depends on it. Uh, there's a battle going on in academia and in our society as a whole, and biblical Christianity in America, unfortunately, is on the decline, as was noted above. One way to counter this decline and to intervene as our young people are abandoning the faith is to show them that there are real answers to the objections that, they will, that they're going to hear in the classroom and in the media. Most of these objections have been answered centuries ago, by men like Aquinas, Augustine, and many others. We do not have to fear reason and logic because these tools are actually on our side. And, I, and I'll often tell people, look, if God created the universe, if, God, if the Bible is true, we don't have to fear. You know, all truth is God's truth. Um, our interpretations of certain things may be off that we need to, to revamp. Um, but 
And if God created this universe, we shouldn't fear philosophy. We shouldn't fear logic. We shouldn't fear science. And I, and I hear this from parents sometimes. They're, they're scared uh, that their kid's too smart. And uh, that's, uh, I, I heard one gentleman say the worst thing that can happen is a college student, you know, they go to school and start learning too much. And, of course, that implies that to be a Christian is to be an idiot and that uh, we shouldn't study too much or enlighten ourselves too much, or otherwise we're going to abandon the faith. And uh, I think that's just that's bad. That, that kind of reasoning is not good. We want to know the truth. We want to study the truth. And if the Bible is the word of God, uh, the, the truth is on our side. Jesus said, you shall know the truth. Truth shall set you free. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we have nothing to fear studying the truth. I ended this article by saying, if we want to be effective in our evangelism, protect our young people from the attacks on Christianity, and be faithful uh, to God's command to defend and share the gospel, then we must not neglect the ministry of apologetics. And I listed several topics uh, or several books that people could get uh, in order to uh, study and get a little more information. Uh, but so we did this conference. We want pastors to be able to to, to be equipped, um, to be able to help them, even if they can't. Again, because pastors are so busy, um, you know, even if they can't sit down and read, you know, a 200 and you know 80 page book on, you know, the latest cosmology or whatever. At least they know what books exist, so they can point uh, their people in in the church to those books. And so we had a great, uh, a great time. We had about 100 to 120 people, I guess, show up. Uh, did a talk on God and culture, and a very good talk by my friend Adam Johnson. Talked about, again, the need for um, us to realize certain assumptions that are built into the culture. We really kind of live in a materialistic culture, and this drives things like how we do science. Um, ethics, etc. My talk was more on God and science. Um, the theme of the event was uh, called uh, the overcoming uh, the o- overcoming an apologetics conference. And so my theme was to look at how a lot of uh, in a lot of areas science has been hijacked by the materialists, and that we don't have to uh, fear doing science. Uh, because, again, all truth is, is God's truth. And so we looked at some of those issues relating to the, the creation of the universe, looked at uh, some of the fine-tuning and the design in the universe, uh, DNA, and uh, some of those issues that also deal with the origin of life. And uh, it was a great conference. Uh, we ended by going to our friend uh, Garrett, who really set the whole thing up, and he did a, did a talk on Islam. So we'll be doing more of those things in the future. Um, Again, if you know of apologetics conferences or events coming around in your area, shoot us a message on Facebook. Again, Theology Matters with the Palouz. Send us that information, and uh, we'd be glad to put it out here over the uh, on the podcast. That way, people can can know about different apologetics in your event uh, events in your area. So that being said, we're going to transition. I'm going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to have John Ferrer on the show. And uh, we're going to, again, have a discussion 
with him about his recent debate with Matt Dillahunty. So stay with us. You're listening to the Ankerberg Minute with apologist and best-selling author, Dr. John Ankerberg. How can we know that God exists? Well, there are many arguments for the existence of God, but one of the most popular is known as the moral argument. The moral argument shares that every law needs a lawgiver, a personal being who is the source of our innate sense of right and wrong. Since moral laws do exist, such as not lying, stealing, or not to murder, there must be an original source for these morals. The Bible explains that God alone is holy, righteous, and morally perfect, and exactly fits the description of this moral lawgiver. As Paul said, God's righteousness endures forever. God alone is holy and serves as our source of perfection and standard of guidance for life. For additional resources on this topic, log on to johnankerberg.org. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. The age-old question, has God said? That question has echoed into the 21st century, and still today many people question the reliability of God. And as Christians, we hear that the Bible is not reliable. How do you respond to somebody who says, Dr. Geyser, the Bible is not reliable? Well, my response is, um, God can't err. The Bible is the Word of God, therefore uh, the Bible cannot err. So if you're going to deny that conclusion, you have to deny one or more of those two premises. So tell me, uh, can God err? The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. You know, Romans 3, 4. The Bible says that uh, it's impossible for God to lie, Hebrews 6:18. The God who cannot lie, Titus 1, 2. So if God can't err, and the Bible is the Word of God, and the Bible claims to be the Word of God. Jesus said it's the Word of God in, in John 10, 34 and 35, and Matthew uh, 15, uh, 1 to 5, he said, you do exalt your traditions above the Word of God, and the Word of God cannot be broken, in John 10, 35. But if the Bible is the Word of God, then God can't err, then the Bible can't err. Now to ask him one more question. If God is omniscient, if he knows everything, how many mistakes can an omniscient mind make? An omniscient mind can't make any mistakes, not in geography, not in history, not in science, not in anything. Well, if the Bible is the Word of God, then write it down. There aren't any mistakes there. All right, folks, welcome back. And... For the next little little while here, about an hour or so, we're going to transition into the second part of our discussion, and we have with us Dr. John Ferrer. He is an educator and minister, originally from South Carolina. Uh, he earned his BA in religion from Charles, Charleston Southern University and an MDiv in apologetics from SES. While in South Carolina, he served four years as an associate pastor at North Rock Hill Church, two years as a collegiate ministry, uh, in a collegiate ministry to Winthrop. Uh, from there, he moved to Dallas and uh, married his wife, Hillary Morgan Ferrer, who's also a brilliant apologist in her own right, and he's been doing some, uh, looks like he earned a THM and just doing a lot of work in philosophy of religion and working towards a, a PhD. John, are you there? 
Yes, I'm here. I finished up my Ph.D. at Southwestern Seminary. I'm as wonderful and rewarding as that was. I am glad to be done with that course of study. <laughs> Man, reading it, it's like you got more degrees than a thermometer there. That's pretty <laughs> awesome. Thanks. So, did I leave anything out there? Uh, well, I've, I've, um, I. I like to tell people that I spent about six years teaching apologetics at the high school level, uh, in part wow. because that's that's such a poignant age for apologetics, because people aren't waiting to college before they start questioning the faith uh, of their native culture, or the faith of their parents, or their faith of their upbringing. Oftentimes, they're they're asking those kinds of questions, ten, eleven years old, sometimes younger. So it's so it's especially important to be. Uh, thinking through Christian thought itself. What does it mean to think Christianly and how is our our mode of understanding the world different through a Christian lens? And if we have that, that uh, framework in place and we have some good apologetics in place in high school, students can be that much more equipped not just to survive college but to thrive there and to be agents of positive change in the world. That's good. That is that is very good. And then we were actually we were just talking about that last weekend. We were, we did the I believe it was the first um, apologetics conference with the York Baptist Association here in um, oh, yeah. First Baptist Fort Mill. And great First Baptist Fort Mill. Yeah, I used to go to that church at one back when I was younger. Okay, yeah, it's a it's a great facility. We had over a hundred people showed up. I mean, it seems like there, right. there's a lot of interest in apologetics nowadays. Oh, yeah, for sure. So, well, you know, we wanted to have you come on, and uh, I said a little earlier, you've been on the show before, and you actually did mm-hmm. a debate uh, with Matt Dillahunty on the show probably two or three years ago. Uh, we, we talked about mm-hmm. the existence of God, and uh, I've always enjoyed the discussion you guys have had. Uh, you guys have a pretty, seems to be a good relationship, and your discussions always produce more more light than heat. Uh, and so I thought it'd be beneficial for the for the listeners to kind of hear a little bit about that debate. Oh, well. Um, first, I, I would like to recommend they can go check it out themselves. It's uh, it's on YouTube. I think it's, it's um, on Matt Dillahunty's YouTube channel. You should be able to find this pretty easily there. Uh, my approach to the debate uh, is somewhat unique as far as apologetics cases that I've heard of in in that vein of argumentation. When the subject is how can or um, does God exist, typically you'll hear about three arguments for God's existence, and then you'll hear a variety of different objections on the atheist side. Um, but the debate classically and, and the way it's stated is, does God exist? The pro side is arguing, yes, God exists. The con side is arguing, no, God does not exist. And to make their case, they have to show that the disproportionate evidence and reasonable uh, standing is on their side. They're not proving certainty. Mm-hmm. They just need to show better than the other guy. That's that's the, the burden of proof. Um so I approached it saying that typical atheist arguments for atheism import uh, what you might call a smuggled currency that they can't get from naturalism. 
And so the very arguments for God's existence tend to be implying God in the back door, whereas they're trying to push him out the front door. Uh, And the three lines of of evidence I gave for this broader case was um, goal-directedness, which is uh, a fancy word for it is called teleology. Uh, Goal-directedness is, uh, how can I sum it up? It's, It's when things are about something besides themselves. A sign, a street sign is a kind of, uh, it's a kind of teleological object, meaning it's pointing to something else or it's representing something that's not just a street sign. What's interesting about goal-directedness or teleology is this isn't a natural relation. Material is just material. There's no arrangement of atoms that can make those atoms be about other atoms. That's not something Newton ever discovered. That's not anything that you can combine Newtonian laws or material parts to produce. Or if you could, it's not clear how such a thing's even possible. And so teleology, as it's called, is, is a really fascinating study because, in part, it's not a material property. It's not a material object. It doesn't seem to be material at all or even a material relation. Yet this is absolutely central to things like science. Scientists, when they put together an experiment, they have the goal of testing a thesis. The language that they use isn't about lines and squiggles. It's about these abstract concepts in their minds, these ideas, these, these meanings. Mm. That's what they're... The, that's what their their verbiage is about. But to for them to be goal-directed, that is pointing to something besides themselves, you need to have a kind of relation that materially doesn't seem explainable. Uh, so that's one difficulty in science. Now, everyone knows, like you probably run into this a lot, uh, that the probably the strongest artillery from secularism atheism and skepticism, the strongest artillery used in that battlefront is science. We have science here. You've got religion there. We've got knowledge. You've got faith. We've got demonstrated proofs and technology and all of this, this our concrete, tangible stuff that shows that we know what we're talking about. You just have blind faith and prayer and miracles that no one can verify. And that's kind of how it's laid out. But what if science itself is using things that aren't strictly reducible to nature. And Mm. so you have a really fascinating implication just in the functions of science, or I should say the culture of people doing science. Uh, Now, effectively, what I did was I streamlined what I was defending here. If I'm using science, and I've got two more that I'll mention, but if I'm using science this way to imply something besides just nature, then I'm not arguing for the classical God, uh, all-knowing, all-good, um, all-powerful. I'm not arguing for that. That's, that's more than I need to prove. If I'm going to prove that atheism is false, all I need to do is show that nature isn't all there is. That's all I need to do. Wow. <clears throat> and so that's all I was aiming for, which was giving three lines of evidence to suggest that nature is not a sufficient explanation for itself. There are things hey, John, in nature can, which don't seem... Yeah. Oh, I was, yeah. I was just going to ask you a question. So, um, And I okay. know you can you can help me out with this. So 
there's a so now not is it true that not all atheists are materialists and if not like what are what are some of the metaphysical things that they would like they would hold to or or are, or is atheism and um you know rejection of metaphysical things just like synonymous very good question and very astute question. Not everybody, frankly, the, the only people I've heard who raise that objection are fellow theists, uh, people who tend to find atheism ultimately unsatisfying, regardless of what brand it is. Um, the, the short answer is, yes, there are atheists that grant immaterially existing things. The challenge that they face is, when you make that concession, you have made a radical concession away from uh, what might be called popular atheism, the atheism of, say, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and the New Atheists, uh, and you've allowed a category of, of things to exist, like ideas, like uh, meaning, uh, like uh, potentially souls, I, although that's usually one of those things even... Uh, immaterialist atheists usually don't grant souls. Uh, but you've allowed a whole category of things that can exist that don't fit within the demonstrable, measurable um, framework of the natural sciences. Now, my target was primarily with uh, the brand of atheism that Matt Dillahunty represents. If he were an immaterialist atheist, I probably would have approached it very differently. And I would have done a bit more research on some of the more heavy hitters in terms of um, immaterialist brands of atheism. Uh, but my, I would suggest at least one line of defense against that uh, rebuttal form of atheism, is that once you've made that concession to immaterial but existing things, you've surrendered a huge uh, amount to uh, what's traditionally been the purview of theism. And I would like to find from a particular immaterialist atheist what kind of immaterial things they grant, what kind of non-material things that don't fit in the natural sciences that aren't directly observable and so on, what kind of things actually exist. Now, usually the, the way to avoid that and not come off too clumsy <clears throat> is to say that the only, quote, immaterial things that exist are actually derivatives and properties of physical things. So like the law of causality, every effect uh, has a sufficient cause for its existence. That's the law of causality. Or, well, anyway, that as, as an abstract rule, as an abstract principle or an idea, treating it like an abstract, it's, it might exist, but it only exists because it was derived from material things. But what they end up doing in that case, I think, is using the word exist in two different ways. Oftentimes, there, there's a, when you scratch an immaterialist atheist, there's really a materialist underneath it. But <laughs> I, I do admit that immaterialist atheism wasn't in my, in my uh, focus for this debate. Right. And if, if he was that, I probably would have approached differently and uh, directed my research slightly different. Good stuff. All right. So your first one here then is goal directedness or uh, teleology, um, and that would yeah. you were saying that would include like the scientific method, for example. Yeah, 
the scientific method, uh, and this is kind of scandalous. I don't know how many skeptics and atheists realize how when they use the language of teleology uh, that I that I went to the store to get milk. That that too. That's that's a, a directional type of term. That means I have a goal in mind, and I'm acting towards that goal, but that goal existed as a cause, not an effect. And that means it's got causal power. This is a pretty radical idea that uh, supposedly uh, Charles Darwin divorced from the sciences. This teleology sounds like immaterial things that have causal power, and he, his, whole, his whole contribution to science in the form of evolution was supposed to explain how things got to be the way they are in biology without goals, without someone designing it to his ends, to his particular purposes. And so when a person concedes teleology, it now becomes very questionable, where does your teleology uh, uh, fit, or how does it fit with your evolutionary theory? And how does it not concede the very crux of intelligent design theory? Because you know what another word for teleology and goal-directedness is? Design. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Good stuff. All right. So you'd say then you had a couple more couple more the, arguments? The next one, for sure. The next one I, uh, I bring up is mind. Human minds are... Uh, pretty fascinating phenomena that are capable of teleological behavior. We can imagine something, and that idea takes on a causal force for us, and we can act on that idea. That's, that's what most of the history of people's behavior is, at least the thoughtful kinds of behavior we've had. And <laughs> yet mind is an immaterial something, as it's classically understood, um, and it includes things that aren't strictly explainable in reductive terms. The word reductive basically means you can break it down into smaller component parts. But mind seems to be the kind of thing that if you reduce it to smaller parts, you don't have it anymore. And I would suggest it, the burden of proof is on the atheist or the skeptic to show that it's even coherent, it's even logically possible to arrange atoms in a sufficiently complex way to where they can start to have intention. They can start to judge things, evaluate, discern, cognize, and so on. Now, we're not talking about computation. Computers as a model of thinking only deal with computation. <clears throat> I'm talking about things like consciousness or things that entail a degree of consciousness the inexplicability of consciousness within a naturalistic worldview shows up oftentimes when you look at what theories they have for it. One of the key theories that they come up with is emergent theory or emergent mind. This says when you put neurons in a sufficiently complex arrangement uh, and allow the natural time, space, and whatever, it, that brain will produce the effects we know of as mind. Now, this is very interesting, but as far as explanations go, it doesn't explain anything at all. 
I mean, they might as well say emergent magic. Because if you say that you can go from non-mind to mind, well, great, that's a nice faith claim, but you haven't given an account for how that's even possible. That's not any better an explanation than to say that mind is more basic than matter. Because they have no demonstration that this is even possible. All the minds we know of come from a causal set that already includes minds. I, I assume your parents had minds, and I know my parents had minds, and their parents had minds. <clears throat> and so far, the, the sheer number the sheer number of minds that we have, they all come from prior minds. And so we've got the burden, we've got the, the, propens- the preponderance of evidence on our side saying that it takes mind to make mind. And they have the faith claim that minds can come from non-minds. Very good. Yeah, I know that's that's one of the raging debates uh, right now, and, and I guess it has been for for a long time, right? Yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, I don't claim that it's an easy argument to make. The argument from mind um, is is in many ways a very inconclusive argument. Uh, when you get into the academic literature, not only is it tough to plow through philosophy of mind, um, but theists and what's called dualist people who believe that mind and body are distinct substances in some sense. Um, we're, we're in the minority. There's a lot of folks that the best thing they come up with is some mysterium view, which basically throws their hands up and say, we don't know, but we're just going to say that it's all that uh, the physical realm is the only realm. Uh, and then there's emergence theory, which says that somehow uh, mind emerges as some sort of a, a property or as a function or something that um, is otherwise inexplicable. So what would I the, would what suggest would like that the pan- the, oh, Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to ask, what would, so, what would like the pantheist or something like that say um, in regards to that? Would that be similar to the theist or how would they – how would they explain Interestingly the, enough, the, for, for my purposes in this debate, had he conceded pantheism, that would have, uh, that would have been a victory on my part. Because right, my, my, right. my aim was simply that the physical, natural world is not all there is. Pantheism right. grants not necessarily a distinct entity that is a god who's apart from nature, like theism would say, but a, a distinct aspect of the world that's not physical, that's not material, that's not what a, a naturalist could account for. It's not what a naturalist is allowed. And so had he gone the pantheist route, he would have conceded my argument. Now, interestingly, pantheism and panentheism, which is a little more nuanced, I won't go there, versions of this are becoming very popular in philosophy of mind. Um, the monist camp that says the physical realm is all that exists, that's maybe about 50% of philosophy of mind today. Uh, that is, academics in their field hold to some physicalist view saying the physical is all that exists. But about mm-hmm. 25% are dualists and say that mind isn't the same as body. There seems to be two kinds of substances, and one of them is an immaterial substance. And then the third party, which has been growing under the work of David Chalmers, uh, his argument 
called the problem of the hard problem of consciousness. It, he sort of forged a new avenue of challenge to the old monistic views, the physicalists, by saying consciousness seems to be irreducible. Consciousness is radically inexplicable given just physical stuff. Um, and David Noggle, I'm sorry, Thomas Nagel? Thomas Nagel, yeah. a friend of mine named David Nagel, shout out to David. <laughs> um, Thomas Nagel, uh, his article called What's It Like to Be a Bat points out that there's a radically irreducible aspect to uh, experience. Experience is not something you can translate into the kinds of categories that science can deal with because uh, we can't know what it's like to be a bat. We can't. We don't have sonar. That's, that's a radically divergent uh, capacity that no amount of our testing and probing and, and lab experiments can give us ac- access to. And so there are some aspects of mind that aren't explicable in terms of brain. And so this avenue of objection by guys like Thomas Nagel and David Chalmers has made popular the view you just mentioned or a variation on it. Uh, I think the the academic term for it is just panpsychism, saying there's an irreducible aspect of mind to nature. But I'd suggest if there is an irreducible aspect of mind in other objects out there, then that's a huge concession to theism. That's a bit that's a step closer at least to supernaturalism. That the naturalists don't have it all figured out. Right. Very good. So the second point there is minds uh, are capable of teleology. Yeah, that's yeah. You can combine them that way. Basically, all three of my okay. points are variations on the teleology argument. Yeah. Okay. The the third one is a variation on the moral argument. Usually, when I hear the moral argument for God's existence, it sounds something something like this: There exists a natural law. Natural law implies a lawgiver. Therefore, there's a God. Now, this can be tweaked and adapted and developed so that we're talking about objective or absolute laws, and they require an objective or absolute lawgiver. And this can be tweaked in terms of authority. You need a sufficient authority to administer a law. Well, that can get kind of complicated and confusing. So I try to phrase the moral argument in terms of a moral fact. If you said that you've never been married and that you don't run a theology show, that's a fact or it's not. Now, in reality, we can tell whether that's factual or not by going and seeing. I'm on your show right now. That disproves half of the claim. And I met your lovely wife the other day. Uh, So I know that the other half of the claim is false too. In reality, that claim doesn't line up with the reference point. Now, if, if you said you're married and you have a theology show, that would be a fact. That would be a true claim about reality. Now, what makes it true? The reference point, right? If I mm-hmm. say I've got a white car, but I don't, that's false. If I say I have a white car, but in fact I do, then that's a true claim, and it's a fact about the world. Now, if there exist moral facts, we need an adequate reference point for moral claims. 
So a moral claim might be it's wrong to harm babies for the sake of amusement. <clears throat> I don't know any atheist that says it's okay to harm babies for the sake of amusement. <clears throat> and so I try to find stuff like that. But if it, in fact, is wrong to harm babies for the sake of amusement, then that fact, that truth claim, needs a truth maker. It needs a reference point to which it correctly corresponds. What kind of truth maker could work for a moral claim? Well, that moral claim is all about what should or shouldn't be done. Because we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't do that. We should do this other thing. These shoulds, or, or oughts as they're called, these are a sophisticated kind of something. Have you ever stubbed your toe on some ought? <laughs> Not my ever, knowledge. Have, yeah. Have you ever seen a weather front of some shouldness happen? No. We're not talking about physical stuff. We're talking about a different kind of thing. And when you think about it, like, grammatically, we're talking about a conditional kind of claim, a, a statement of, of what may or may not be in reality. If it's wrong to harm babies for the sake of amusement, but yesterday I kicked one like a, like a soccer ball because I just felt, felt like doing it, in reality, that happened. It, it, you know, I'm giving a hypothetical. It actually didn't. I didn't go kick babies yesterday. Um, but, <laughs> but if that were the case, that would have been the reality there. That happened. And so the moral claim isn't saying what is or what is not, strictly speaking. It's saying an ought or what ought not. And the is applies to whether, in fact, we should do this or not. That's, that's the fact about reality. So if I make the claim we shouldn't harm babies for the sake of amusement, I'm making an ought claim. That ought is either true or false, or it's meaningless, which I don't think Matt wanted to go there. But if it's true, then it has to correspond to something. And the only kind of thing to which it could correspond is another ought. But nature doesn't have any oughts. Nature doesn't deal in oughts. Nature deals in is. Facts about how things work. Facts about what happened and what didn't happen. Nature doesn't tell us what should or shouldn't happen. That's a hypothetical kind of thing. Nature doesn't do hypotheticals. Nature doesn't propose possible realities. Nature just does stuff or it doesn't. That's all it does. And so we're dealing with an abstract kind of thing that is wholly inexplicable in natural terms. And I think this is a powerful mode of developing the moral argument. So I say, I guess uh, if I had to bring it down a little bit, there exist moral facts. And I can give some examples like uh, we shouldn't rape uh, other people. We uh, shouldn't harm babies for the sake of amusement. We should broadly respect the, the interests and desires of other people where it's no harm to ourselves. You know, we can, we can identify true claims about how we should behave. But the only proper truth makers for those would be ought statements, ought claims, ought facts. But nature doesn't have any ought. And for lack of oughtness in nature, we have to go outside of nature for truth makers. If these moral claims are going to be facts, we're going to have to go outside of nature for their factuality to hold up. And in fact, I would suggest the atheists who's got all this riling, burning indignation about the immoral God of the Old Testament or the problem of evil 
or all these immoral abuses of the church, all of that moral indignation is hollow unless there is a moral fact. So they need moral facts so that their own arguments can stand up. But what they've just done is they've kicked God out the front door only to have him sneak back in the back door. Mm, very good. All right, folks, we're going we're gonna to take a short break. Uh, John, you up for taking any phone calls? People call in if they want to talk it. Talk uh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> all right, folks, we're going to take, a, take dog, a break here. Yeah, all right. Number is 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907, and we will be back uh, after this. God's Word can sustain a lifetime of study, and the new Reformation Study Bible is carefully crafted to enrich your study of Scripture. When you register your new study Bible online, you'll instantly gain access to hundreds of dollars of discipleship resources from Ligonier Ministries. You'll own several teaching series, including Dust to Glory, Dr. R.C. Sproul's 57-message survey of the entire Bible. You'll receive six months of devotional content with a subscription to Table Talk Magazine. You'll have convenient access to select e-books on your digital devices. And you'll join others from around the world on Ligonier Connect. Your new Reformation Study Bible is a great foundation for growth. Register it today and unlock a lifetime of study. Here's a Renewing Your Mind Minute with Dr. R.C. Sproul. Spiritual rebirth is the work of God. When Paul speaks in Ephesians 2 about being quickened by the Holy Ghost while we're dead in sin and trespasses, he's talking about regeneration, which is a supernatural work. It is a work done from above by the immediate power of God, and it is something that only God can do. You cannot make yourself be reborn any more than Lazarus could have brought himself out of the tomb. Just as you did not do anything for your natural birth except be born, so your rebirth is a matter of the mercy and grace of God. For today's special offer, visit renewingyourmind.org. All right, folks, and we are back. Uh, again, if you'd like to get on the air and talk with uh, Dr. Ferrer, you can call 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. Uh, John, the last uh, debate you guys had, I know you guys have done a few different debates. Tell us uh, for, for a minute here, what was this, what was this venue like? Uh, it looked like it was, it was pretty, pretty awesome. The the venue with Matt Dillahunty was or that the one bef- was, the one after that the one with David Smalley that might have been the one okay yeah I was thinking the one with Dillahunty you did not do that one at the Bible Beer Consortium is, is that okay. uh, the Dillahunty debate was at Austin <laughs> P University and it was put on in part by the philosophy department and I think um, uh, a few student uh, there might might have been a um, student ministry organization involved as well. Um, the other debate I did, uh, let's see, I did a debate in August with David Smalley, and um, that was at the Bible and Beer Consortium, 
through That's Ezra Boggs. I encourage every, everybody should go check it out. Um, uh, you can watch those debates and those talks live streams, so it doesn't matter where you are in the country. You should be able to see it. Uh, but it was a really fun venue. Um, it's, it's in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and the idea is to have uh, a theology-friendly talk or debate in a bar. And that way you're kind of getting out of the trappings of, of uh, four walls of a church and finding a, a halfway point where people can come ask questions that would oftentimes be out of bounds at a local church that would not be taken kindly. But in that setting, well, you're kind of in neutral setting, so to speak, that the bar is just as much within God's sovereign domain as the church is, but a skeptic or an atheist is liable to feel more comfortable coming and bringing their questions and comments and uh, accusations or whatnot. But when I debated David Smalley, you know, everybody's out there with, with their, their steins and their, their uh, uh, pipes and cigarettes and whatnot. And you're just, you, you get a sense that this, <laughs> this is a really special something that doesn't happen all the time. Um, yeah, it was good. Yeah, I I love I love the idea of that. That's uh, that is really cool. All right, had a just a quick question here. So on your the third point, um you're talking about kind of establishing that there's a thing as moral facts and you give the example of course of the torturing babies for fun. Uh mm-hmm. if that's a moral fact, you say that it requires a truth maker. So is a yeah. is a truth maker something like uh something to like a grounding or how do you define truth maker? Okay, truth maker is kind of a um, it's a it's a nuanced term to allow for a couple different understandings of how truth works. But ultimately, truth every every truth claim that we find in the world and, and that we make implies what's called correspondence theory. X corresponds to reality, therefore it's true. X does not correspond, or I should say, X corresponds to its reference point. And if it does that, then it's true. If it doesn't correspond, then it's false. And this correspondence theory of truth, I would suggest, is implied even when people are trying to deny it. I think it's inescapable about rational thought for human beings. This correspondence theory uh, is an account for how truth is grounded. What makes moral facts indeed facts? That's your truth maker. What makes it true that we shouldn't, uh, you know, slaughter all the Jews in a Holocaust. Well, for that claim that we shouldn't slaughter all Jews, if that claim's going to be true, it needs to correctly correspond to something. And that something, if it doesn't exist, then it's neither true nor false to say that we shouldn't slaughter all Jews. That's not a moral fact if there's no reference point to which that correctly corresponds. And so folks that are willing to do away with uh, moral facts or it it can variously be unpacked as moral absolutes or objective morality, people who are willing to do away with that, I suggest, haven't really thought it through very well. At least most of them haven't. Perhaps there's some Nietzschean nihilist at, at the next debate on that who says, well, I've, I've looked on that well, and it's empty, and I'm still diving in. Well, okay, maybe someone's like that, but I suggest that folks 
do have more moral knowledge than they let on when they uh, are denying moral facts. Because, for example, when folks say, oh, there can't be a good God because of all this evil in the world, just look at this barbarism in your Old Testament, and that suggests your God's not all good and so on. Okay, okay, let's, let's look at that. This, you know, Abraham sacrificing his son, that shouldn't happen all else being equal. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Is that should claim true? If it's true, it has to correspond to something. But nature never said anybody should survive. Quite the opposite. Nature's killing everything as we speak. Nature's in the business of killing things. Nature isn't in the business of protecting and sustaining life. 99.999% of nature is entirely destructive to life. It's anti-life. So we don't get from nature all things being equal, we don't get things from nature saying that Isaac should survive or that Abraham is wrong for killing his son. And so do you see how this, how this works? This moral facts approach to the moral argument, I think, simplifies a lot of the arguments about authority and absoluteness and just says truth or falsity with respect to morality. And it is a grounding issue, but I don't think it, it has to escalate into some of the more esoteric metaphysical conjectures. Okay. Well, that's, that's good. Let's, let's, uh, I guess, kind of look at that. Then with, uh, with the first one you gave the, the goal directedness or teleology. Um, mm-hmm. So how did, how did uh, Matt respond to some of these uh, arguments that was, that was pointed out and how would you respond to some of his counters? Well, the thing I found with Matt, and my memory is bad. I remember my arguments better because I studied them longer. So I'm not looking at the at the video. I'm I'm not taking comprehensive additional notes. Now that the debate's over, I only glance back a little bit. But if I had to sum up his argument, it was kind of like setting all that aside since God's existence is so ridiculously improbable, the burden of proof is on you to prove that he probably exists. And instead of mounting his arguments, which in a debate, there's a pro and a con. And the way that I made sure that we picked a topic that would not stilton in his favor, the, the does God exist? The pro side has the burden of proof to show that he probably exists, the, or to show that he exists. The con side has a burden of proof to show that he doesn't exist. And what he did is kind of assumed what is his more popular view, which is theists have all the burden of proof. That may work on a radio show, but in a formal debate, you still have your respective burden of proof. I gave three lines of evidence that naturalism can't adequately account for nature. And he basically said, "Uh uh-uh and tried to play the burden of proof game. By the end of the debate, he was actually saying that he's not arguing the con position. He's arguing maybe or probably not. And he actually avoided, he he verbally distanced himself from the con position because the con position is classical atheism or what's now called positive atheism. And he he recognizes that if he's going to say God doesn't exist, he then has a burden of proof, and he doesn't like that. He prefers us to have the burden of proof, and he can play agnostic. 
agnostication, oh. as it's sometimes called. <laughs> and I, I, yeah. I think in terms of formal debate, he kind of surrendered a lot more than he realized at that time. Because it works on his radio show, and it works right. in you know Facebook popular debates. But in terms of formal debate, if the only guy's offering positive evidence for their claim is one side and the other just kind of uh, shoots at your claims a little bit, they haven't demonstrated their side. Because all I need is one, all I need is one run to to win the the game. If he's not willing to step up to the bat and and offer positive claims for atheism, then even weak evidence in my favor is sufficient to win the debate. So I was I was kind of surprised at that. I won't say I won't say I was disappointed because I thought that was a, a beneficial turn of events when he refused to really defend the con position, which is what he was hired to do for that debate. Let me ask you, uh, does, does, does he hold to, like, objective moral values? Uh, in the past, he has. And I went into this debate uh, assuming so. When I debated him previously, I guess that was like four years ago, at the time he was a fan of Sam Harris. And in the course of that debate and my talk with him on your show, that, that debate as well, uh, he had since granted one of my objections about Sam Harris's science ethics view. Sam Harris says that morality is properly within the domain of science, and I suggest that that's a category mistake and that's terribly naive. Uh, and the key to my objection, he's granting that there's an explanatory problem when it comes to jumping from natural facts to moral facts, or what's called is-ought, the is-ought fallacy. He has since granted that that's probably a challenge for atheism, and he tends to avoid uh, approaching that issue head-on. And part of the reason he avoids it is because of our exchanges at the the debate in uh, at Collin County College, the four-person debate four years ago, and our talk on right. this show. He's, yeah. uh, he's stepped back. So he is, a, I think he's still a moral objectivist, but I think he's much more reluctant to try to defend it. And that's why I think he had to take a route of playing uh, more the agnostic at the debate which sees that, that um, he can't defend his position if he plays the agnostic and says, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. The middle position is a surrender. And when he should have been saying, here's how your claims uh, are falsified, here's how your claims are uh, irrational, here's how your claims are incoherent, here's how your claims are implausible, and here's better arguments to the contrary. He generally didn't do that. I couldn't tell that he actually addressed my lines of argument as such. It, it was, it was. I thought that was the biggest strength of my side is that my three main lines of argument he largely avoided. So he didn't necessarily put forward forward a positive case for his side. Just kind of um, just uh, just claimed agnostic on your your claims. Yeah, that, that's the that's the general impression I got at the time, and that's the impression that stuck with me. If I went and listened right. to it again, I might find more substance in there. Uh, but on the whole, I, I I don't think he did a terrible job. I think strategically he used a few tricks that informal debate 
uh, are huge concessions, and I don't know that he realized that he was conceding as much as he was. Wow. Yeah. Well, that's good. But, but that's not that uncommon. Is, it's it's pretty common for skeptics and atheists to play the shifting burden of proof game, which you know it's it's fine, trying to identify who has the the greater burden of proof and then try to shoulder your burden and whatnot. But in a debate, he's already granted, he's already conceded to a, a share of the burden of proof, and he really didn't do that. He played skeptic, not atheist there. And folks oftentimes don't know the difference, but in a formal debate, that makes a huge difference. If you're saying, I don't know, well, then you're not helping the audience to know that you're correct. You don't know isn't necessarily right. demonstrating that I don't know. <laughs> right. That's good. You you'd say um, not just necessarily on this issue, but like with, with in in debates when Christians and atheists uh, do these debates. I know you've been in in several of them. Um, you would say that both sides really have a have a burden to to mm-hmm. to carry, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm fine with that. I, I don't think theism is easy. I don't think Christianity yeah. is a is a small pill to swallow. I think it's a hard pill to swallow. And in many ways, right. it's radically offensive to our sensitivities, and I think it's it's a tough case to make. But the the consolation I take is that of all the hard roads out there, uh, and this being one of them, this is the easiest of the hard roads. <clears throat> yeah, say, and a lot of the, the atheists that I the see, most, yeah. they don't they, they don't really have they don't think they have any kind of burden of proof. It's just sit back and play yeah. skeptic. They don't have to put forth any yeah. arguments. It's just sit back and try and punch holes in everything the theist gives is, is what I see a lot. And there's there's a way to do that legitimately. There's a way to angle the conversation so that uh, you don't have the burden of proof in your measure of skepticism. And I don't dismiss that. There's a way to do it. But uh, at a popular level, I think one of the drawbacks of this shift of the definition of atheism, this shift from mm. classical atheism that says there is no God to lack of theism, which says, I don't know, I just lack theism, I think that shift has, has made a lot of the, the atheists a bit intellectually lazy. They're not, they're not necessarily claiming the rational high ground for all I know, this person who says they don't know whether God exists, maybe they're just not, in some cases, the person just isn't really willing to do the work to know one way or another. Maybe they're just, maybe it's a lazy outlet so they don't have to deal with the consequences of if God exists. And the way they understand the world without God works fine for them now, even if it's a weaker explanation, so because it's working, they don't go anywhere with it. They just assume the high ground. Well, if you're going to have the intellectual high ground, you're going to have to earn it. And just because you're an atheist and you lack theism doesn't mean you're a rational atheist. And if you want me to to concede that you're a rational atheist, I'm going to need some proof. I like that. Do you have anything else to add on the Dillahunty debate? Uh, Maybe we could talk a few minutes about your uh, debate with uh, with. Smalley, if you like, or if you wanted to wrap up or add anything to the to the Dillahunty debate, feel oh, free. I see, I can't I can't think of anything off off the top of my head. I honestly prepared for the Smalley debate to talk about that here, um, but I I thought um, Matt was a very congenial person, 
Uh, he he wasn't rude or mean spirited. Uh, you know, little little snarky, but nothing nothing um, uh, out of bounds. We did have an right. interesting conversation on Christianity and slavery, but that was at the airport as we were heading back the next day. Uh, I found it interesting that the soundbite that stuck with me, uh, and you're probably aware of uh, the subject of slavery in the Bible, and and you got some real real soft spots in terms of uh, non-contextual proof texting. Just say the Bible approves slavery. Just look at this verse and look at this verse. And it takes some real work as a Christian apologist to account for the context and explain what's going on there and what do they mean by slavery and what culturally was slavery serving and was it the same kind of thing we mean by slavery today and so on. So it, it takes a little nuancing to be fair with what the claim is back then, because that's thousands of years old in a very different culture in a very different time with very different circumstances. And at one point, Matt, who was making the expected case that your Bible supports immorality, therefore it's not trustworthy, therefore your claims to a good God aren't very believable, he said he doesn't care about the context. At one point, he says he doesn't care about the context. And I know he's getting at it, and I want to give him a gracious interpretation, but I would suggest for any skeptics or critics who are listening, don't say that. Don't say you don't care about the context, because if you don't care about the context, then you don't care about what that text means. Text is meaningless apart from context. If I say I had a hole in one, what does that mean? Well, you don't know unless there's a context for it. Am I on the golf course? Or am I stitching a new shirt? If I had a hole in one, then I've got a hole where I shouldn't have a hole in my new shirt. If I got a hole in one on the golf course, that context makes all the difference. And so unless you're <laughs> concerned about context, and you're not really concerned about what the text means. And if you're not really right. concerned about what the text means, you're not looking to do justice as a fair interpreter of the text. You're looking for a proof text that will agree with what you already want to believe about it. Wow. That's that is right on the money. That is exactly right. Well, folks, would uh, would definitely would encourage you guys to check out the discussion on YouTube. Uh, John, is there any any other debates you've been a part of that uh, people can can check out? Do you have a website or anything where people can, uh, can uh, I, find your? I debate? encourage people to check out my uh, WordPress site, intelligentchristianfaith.com. Uh, I've had some good good lively discussions. Uh, in the comments section, but um, I, uh, I've been making a lot of my resources available there. I also have a website devoted to uh, a little bit more academic treatments of the abortion debate, and that's at Abortion yeah. History Museum. I, I forget the uh, the rest of the address, but it's if you just Google Abortion History Museum, no spaces, it should be one of the first ones that come up. But I um, I had a that formal debate with. Um, David Smalley, and then I had another talk that I gave uh, with the guy named Jonathan McClatchy uh, on abortion. It was called uh, How Holocausts Happen, and I dealt with the problem of mass crimes and mass bloodshed and identified how all the factors that correspond with, say, um, the slaughter in in, uh, Rwanda or the Holocaust in Nazi Germany 
or the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, the factors that precipitated such mass bloodshed, those factors are very much in play currently now, even in the United States. There's just a few differences uh, of historical significance, but when we compare the numbers, we're sitting on a Holocaust that's 10 times the size of the, of the Nazi Holocaust, and it's abortion. Wow. And people don't think of that. They, they think of us right. having morally evolved beyond that. We've learned our lessons of history. We're better than that now. But as secularism is rising, abortion uh, isn't necessarily declining, not in any great numbers. And we're having right. more and more abortion uh, historically. It's only been going down a little bit. It's just under a million a year in the U.S. Wow. But that's easy enough to surpass the number of casualties in Afghanistan and in Iraq on at least a weekly basis. All of the Afghanistan and Iraqi casualties, we're surpassing that every week at least. And I, My I goodness. crunched the numbers. Oh yeah, I crunched the numbers for all of um, all of the major uh, million person plus catastrophes in, in world history, and um, the global numbers for abortion just since 1980. So we're talking 36 years. The global numbers for abortion surpass all of them. Abortion is more deadly than even the Great Flood would have been if there was a universal Great Flood. Abortion rates wow. are, are like five times that. And in America, we've had far more abortions than we've had all of the war casualties in all of U.S. history. We've had enough abortions to equal the total population of New York and California combined. Man, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And I, I want the church to act like the church in this regard and to fight for those who can't fight for themselves, to speak up for the widows we, and orphans. Because if there's a more defenseless we a, we, population besides preborns, I don't know who they would be. Yeah. We need to have you on again, and just we need to do a show on abortion. Because <laughs> I know that's, that's a big area of yours. It's a, it's a passion of ours as well. It's it's just so horrific. Um but John, you're you're the man. You're the guy I, I always go to, and uh, one guy that well, I aspire you. to be like. You're 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 who I want to be when I grow up, man. <laughs> oh, you're you're too kind. You're too kind. I hope you can do way better than me. <laughs> well, I appreciate you being on the show, and say hello to your wife for us, and uh, I'll get with you about setting up another show in the future with uh, doing doing something on abortion. I think that'd be great. Sounds great. Thank you. Well, God bless you, and I appreciate your time uh, and let me on your show. It's an honor. Absolutely. Absolutely. Look forward to talking to you again in the future. All right. You take care. God bless. All right, friends. Uh, we'll be back again next week, God willing, and we will continue our discussion on theology, apologetics, uh, have, I've been in uh, contact with Dr. Doug Groteis, and he is author of Christian Apologetics. He's author of Truth Decay, just a incredible mind, and uh, has just written a new book, Philosophy in Seven Sentences. So I'm, I'm coordinating with him now, and uh, we'll, we'll hopefully be able to get him on the show very soon and uh, have a discussion on his new book. 
Uh, for those who are not aware, we did interview uh, Nancy Piercy oh, three weeks ago, I think, on her new book, uh, Finding Truth. And uh, she's a, a, a brilliant, brilliant thinker. And so be sure to look at our archives for that, and you'll find it. And uh, just want to say thanks again to John for coming on the show. And uh, keep us in prayer, if you will. We have a lot of things going on this summer as Ratio Christie has is, is kind of come to an end for the semester. Um, we'll be able to be, we'll be doing some, a little bit of traveling over the summer. Uh, God willing, I'll be ordained in the Southern Baptist uh, Convention this May, and so I'll be going through that ordination. So please keep, keep us in your prayers for that. And again, if you guys have any uh, events, apologetic or theology, anything like that, shoot us a message on Facebook. Let us know where and when and what time, etc. And uh, we will be sure to get that out, let people know about it. So appreciate uh, appreciate everybody joining us. And again, we will uh, we will be back next week, God willing. So. Have a great week. God bless.